Let's open God's word this afternoon to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. Isaiah 43, we will read the chapter. The text for this afternoon's sermon will be the first two verses. Isaiah chapter 43. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, Thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee, since thou wast precious in my sight. Thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say, It is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea, and a path in the mighty waters, which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, and army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinct, they are quenched as tow. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall ye, not, shall ye not know it? 
I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob. But thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast, brought, thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with the fat of thy sacrifices. But thou hast made me to serve with thy sins, thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, and have given Jacob to the curse, and Israel to reproaches. Thus far we read God's word. The text for this afternoon's sermon is the first two verses. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. The lot of God's people in this life is that we must suffer many afflictions. That's true of every one of us as God's people. To one degree or another, every one of us faces some burden, some trial, some hardship. Because that's God's lot in general for his people, I have no doubt that it is God's lot for you. For Calvary Protestant Reformed Church, and for the individuals and for the families who are gathered here this afternoon. I'm not aware of the many trials you face. That's one of the difficulties of being a visiting minister but I know you have them I asked the elders before the worship service can you give me some idea of different difficulties some of God's people are facing no names but just tell me what Calvary Protestant Reformed Church is going through and they gave a number of examples 
And even if what you are facing, child of God, was not one of the specific examples they mentioned, part of the lot that we all must face in this life is to suffer, to bear heavy burdens. And while I do not know what those burdens are, the Spirit does. And therefore, with confidence, I bring this word tonight, trusting that the Spirit of Christ will take this word and apply it to each one of you as is needed. For in this word, we have a word of comfort. That though we must indeed face trials, our Redeemer, our Savior, will be with us in them. He will not allow them to overwhelm us. And he will instead use those very hardships for our good. That is his loving purpose. And so let's consider this word of comfort that comes to us in Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2, using as our theme, passing through the waters. First, we are going to look at the fiery trials. Second, at the Redeemer's presence. And then third, at the good or loving purpose. Passing through the waters, the fiery trials, the Redeemer's presence, and the good purpose. Part of what makes this passage so memorable is that it likens the trials, the difficulties, the hardships that we face to passing through water and walking in the midst of a fire. That's the language we find in verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. There are two different illustrations that are used in this passage, both of which speak to the trials and afflictions that we face in this life. On the one hand, there is the the illustration of passing through the waters, and the idea here is of a a raging river that is flowing quickly and that one and a river that one must somehow some way get to the other side of think of a a flooded river that's moving at a great speed and the trials of our life are likened to us trying to pass through such a river to get to the other side. On the other hand, the illustration used here is that of a fire, whether a forest fire or a fire of a house. The idea is that we are surrounded by flames. We can feel the intense heat upon our skin. It's painful, and the only way out is to pass right through the flames themselves. And this is God's own description of the trials we face. It's quite a description because water and fire are both destructive forces. We know that by our own experience, we see the news reports of some great flood or a tsunami tsunami and the devastation that it can bring. Or we see the news reports about a great forest fire 
and the millions of acres that it burns up or the fire that came upon some building and reduced it to ashes. These are destructive forces. And that's not just our experience, but that's God's own testimony. For in Scripture, we find that God uses water and fire to destroy. To destroy this earth, in fact. The first time God destroyed this earth, he used water. In the days of Noah, he sent a a great flood to destroy this earth. So that in 2 Peter 3, verse 6, we read that the earth perished in the flood. Waters can be a destructive force. And the same with fire. For God's going to destroy the earth a second time at the end of all things when Christ comes again. The first time he used water, the second time he will use fire, even as we're taught in 2 Peter 3, verse 10. That the elements of the earth shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So this passage speaks of water and fire, both destructive forces, and it uses both of them as analogies, as illustrations regarding the trials that we face. And that by itself is noteworthy. Child of God, the word does not minimize or make light of the trials you are facing. God's word does not come to us tonight and tell us, well, This is really not that big of a deal. Why is this so hard for you? That's not God's word. But instead, God's own evaluation of the trials that we face is that it's like passing through a raging river, like walking in the midst of a fire. Scripture itself reckons with the pain, with the difficulty of the trials and hardships that we face. And we do face them. That too is part of the teaching of the text. In fact, the text is really a promise that we will face them because the language of the passage is not if thou passest through the waters, but when thou passest through the waters. And the language is not if thou walkest through the fire, but when? This is going to happen. Oh yes, there are seasons of prosperity in which we are rejoiced, in which we are thankful, but there are also seasons of adversity. And as I said in the introduction, no doubt that is true to every one of us to one degree or another this evening. And when those trials become especially severe, we can read a passage like this and say, yes, that's exactly what it feels like. This is an apt description of the trials that we face. There are times that we feel as though we're going to be swept swept along by the raging torrent. There are times when we experience the discomfort of the the fiery trial as it, it... presses ever closer to us. And on account of those trials, there are times we are afraid. 
That, after all, is our default response, our natural response to the trials that we face. And that, too, comes out in the passage. It comes out in verse 1, for example, when the exhortation right in the middle is, Fear not. And that word is repeated a number of times in the the rest of Isaiah 43. Fear not, do not be afraid. And the reason that that exhortation is given again and again and again is exactly because that's what we're prone to. That's our natural response when the trials and afflictions come upon us. We are inclined to become afraid. How much deeper Will the waters become? I'm not sure if I'll be able to keep my head afloat. How much hotter are the flames going to get? I feel the pain already now, and I'm not sure I can endure anything more. Trials have a way of keeping us up at night. Cannot sleep. Our mind is consumed with what's going on. We find it difficult to work, difficult to focus on the the tasks that God has put right in front of us. We feel overwhelmed. That's our natural response. And what accentuates that is the knowledge that Sometimes, whatever trials and difficulties we face, sometimes are sent on account of our own sin. And that's a part of this passage. And now, before we get into the, that aspect of the passage, we do need to qualify that statement and say, not always. Child of God, it is not always the case that when some difficulty comes upon us, that it's the direct result of sin. It's not always some direct chastisement for a specific sin in our lives. And we say that on the basis of Scripture. There's both a clear Old Testament and a clear New Testament example that make that clear. In the Old Testament, it's Job. God's own assessment of Job was that he was a a perfect man, an upright man, so that when he loses everything, his his wealth, his family, his health, we understand that that was not on account of a particular sin in Job's life. That's the Old Testament example. In the New Testament example, we have that man who was born blind that we read about in John chapter 9. The disciples assume that he was born blind on account of someone's sin so that the question of the disciples to Jesus Christ was, who was it that sinned? Was it This man, or was it his parents? Somebody had to sin for this to happen to him. And Jesus' response was, no, 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 you have it all wrong. His response was, neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So that from these two examples, we see that the presence of some difficulty, some trial in our lives does not necessarily mean that God's heavy hand is now upon us. It's not always related to some particular sin. But now with that qualification in place, 
there are times that God is disciplining us, chastening us for our sins. And we say that in light of the historical context in which this word of God was written. This is the prophecy of Isaiah, written and spoken to God's wayward and backsliding people, the nation of Judah. They had gone astray. They were worshiping idols. And any worship they did give to God was mere religious formalism. It was just an external display. And though God had rebuked them for their sin, they persisted in their sin. And thus God would send a great trial, a great affliction upon them, namely the Babylonians, who would come and kill many. And those who lived would be carried away captive so that for the people of Judah, they very really had to walk in the midst of fire. For the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the city of God, with fire. They endured a fiery trial, and for them it was on account of their sin. And at times the same holds true for us. When God is disciplining us in that way, there will be a clear connection between the sin and the specific chastisement that comes upon us. God does not leave us questioning, doubting, well, is this because of a a sin in my life? No, he makes it known so that the, the punishment, the consequences, the discipline align with the particular sin in such a way that we will not miss it. But now, having explained all that, that raises the burning question for us. What if God is seeking my destruction? And we have that question, really, regardless of the the specific trial, whether it's a generic trial that we're facing or whether it's linked to some sin. In the midst of it, we can sometimes wonder, does God still care about me? Or is he trying to communicate to me through this trial, through this trial that you are not my child anymore, that I'm done with you, I'm, I'm, I'm abandoning you? And that's the burning question because understand, there's, there's nothing more frightening in all the world than to think that we've so provoked, that we've so offended this God that he has finally had enough. What if God intends to destroy me in this? Insofar as that's the struggle in our heart and mind, hear the word of comfort that's found in this passage. That though our God does indeed require us at times to pass through the waters and to walk in the midst of fire, our Redeemer, our Savior Jesus Christ is present with us. Our present Redeemer. 
God promises to be present with us in the midst of the trials. That's the promise of verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. God promises to be with us. Which is to say, his promise is not that he's going to take us out of the trials. Sometimes we desire that. Sometimes that's what we want. God, if you really cared about me, why don't you just make my life easy? Why can't you just take this trial away? Why can't you take me out of it? But nowhere does God promise that. Not once on the pages of Scripture will you find a promise of God saying, I will make your life easy. But instead, his promise is the promise of verse 2. I will be with you. And he is indeed with us. He's with us because he has sent his spirit to live and to dwell within us so that at all times and in all places we have the spirit of Jesus Christ with us, dwelling in our hearts, strengthening us and upholding us. He's with us by means of his spirit and the power of the spirit of Christ. And what is more, he's with us by means of his word. Whether it's the the word preached, whether it's the, the word written upon our hearts, our God is with us. And know well, he's with us in the trial itself. Verse 2 says, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. It's not that there's this raging torrent that we have to get across and God is on one side, that Jesus Christ is standing over there and he's, he's calling from the shoreline to us while we're in the middle of the river saying, well, if you can, if you can make it through, I, I'm here waiting for you. His word is not, well, try to get close enough and I'll, I'll throw a lifeline, I'll, I'll throw a life raft to you and then I'll drag you to shore. But he's with us in the river. He's with us right there in the midst of the trial. And the same applies to the other analogy that there's a wall of flames all around us. It's not, well, make a run for it and try to jump through the flames and when you're there, I'll catch you. But he's in the midst of the fire. He's right there in the midst of the trial with us. And it's because he's with us in the trial itself That these trials cannot completely destroy us and overwhelm us. Notice the language of verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. You're not going to be drowned in the river. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. You're not going to be consumed by the fire. And the explanation for that is because our Savior is there with us in the trial. Think about it, beloved. Because he's with us, that means for the river to drown us, to overwhelm us, for the fire to consume us, it first must overwhelm him. 
The fire would first have to consume him before it could ever touch us, and we all recognize that's impossible. Because we're talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is God, and really the one who is sovereign over the very trials that we face. Which means the the raging river will not get one inch deeper apart from his will, and the fire will not get one degree hotter apart from his will. He's the one controlling the very trials and afflictions that we face. Which means it's impossible for them to overwhelm him. And that means it's impossible for them to completely consume us. Because he's there guarding us. He is our shield and our defense. He's the one who upholds us, who who wraps us up in his arms and cares for us. He is with us. Our Redeemer is present. And you may be sure that that will always be the case. Exactly because he has redeemed us and has made us his own. And that's where verse 1 comes in. There's the truth of his presence, but standing behind the truth of his presence is the fact that we belong to him as his people. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. This verse underscores all that God has done to make us his people. It begins with, he's created us. And certainly that includes our physical creation. He gave to us life and breath. But more to the point, and what's in view here, is that he has spiritually recreated us. He has taken us who were dead sinners. And he's made us alive again. For the Spirit of Christ has come and infused the very life of Christ into us to Make us alive again. And what is more, the passage goes on and says, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. Our redemption referring to the saving work of Jesus Christ, who redeemed us not with gold, not with silver, but with his own precious blood. He paid the ransom for us so that we who were enslaved to sin, we who were in bondage to the devil himself, have now been liberated. We've been set free and we now belong to our Savior Jesus Christ. We are His precious possession. He created us. He redeemed us. And then third, the passage says, I have called thee by thy name. That as our God calls us out of darkness and into His marvelous light, powerfully and irresistibly, He draws us to Himself. And he does that by name. As those whom he's chosen in eternity. With our names written upon the palms of his hands. And because he's recreated us, because he's redeemed us, because he's called us, the, the result of all of this is we belong to him. That's how the verse, the conclusion of verse 1, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. We are his precious possession. We are his covenant people. And to make that clear, 
He's given us his own name. That's the significance of the change of name that we find at the beginning of verse 1. Verse 1 starts this way, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. There's a change from Jacob to Israel. And now, yes, they both refer to the same person and the same people group, but nevertheless the change is significant because you'll remember Jacob is the elect son of Isaac and Rebekah, the one chosen as the child with whom God would continue his covenant. But the name Jacob means heel holder. And it's later on in Jacob's life that he's given a new name, the name Israel. And the significance is that God himself was placing his name upon Jacob. Because the L, the E-L at the end of Israel is the name for God. So the change in name from Jacob to Israel was God placing his name upon his chosen servant. And that's what God does with us. That's what Jesus Christ does with us. We are called Christians. We have the name of our Savior applied to us. And as a a husband gives to his wife his last name, so our Savior gives his name to us. We are his bride. And we belong to our faithful Savior. So that what Jesus Christ says to us is the same word at the end of verse 1. Thou art mine. And understand that because He has created us, because He has redeemed us, because He's called us by name, because He now says that we belong to Him, and that because He claims us as His own, all of that then is the guarantee that he will be with us. As we walk through the fire, as we must pass through the waters, child of God, you are so dear to him. He loves you more than you could know. And having done all that he has for you, He's not going to give you up in the midst of the trial. He's not going to let you slip through his fingers. But he will be with you, upholding you, strengthening you, caring for you in the very midst of the waters and in the very midst of the fire. That's his promise. But now if all of that's true, and it is, perhaps you are left wondering, well, why then do we have to go through it all? If this is not sent as destruction, if he's going to be with me the whole time, why do I even have to go through with this all? And the answer is that God has a good and loving purpose. And that good and loving purpose is to purify us. 
which means to put it negatively, God's purpose for his people is not to destroy them. And what a comfort that is because we must recognize that for the wicked, the trials, the difficulties they face do do indeed serve their destruction. And that comes out in light of the immediately preceding context to the verses that we are considering this afternoon. If we had started our scripture reading in Isaiah 42, we would have read at the end of the chapter this, verse 25, Isaiah 42, verse 25. Therefore he hath poured upon him the fury of his anger, the strength of battle, and it hath set him on fire round about, yet he knew not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. So Isaiah 42, verse 25 is saying that that God sent this difficulty, this, the Babylonians upon the people of Judah to burn him. But then two verses later we're told that though you must pass through the midst of the waters and walk in the midst of the fire, you're not going to be burned. So there's an apparent contradiction here. You're going to be burned, you're not going to be burned. And we ask, what's going on here? How are we to understand these two verses and reconcile them together? The explanation is that within the nation of Judah, there was both a chosen and redeemed remnant, as well as a great number of wicked unbelievers. And in chapter 42, verse 25, God is addressing the wicked unbeliever. For him, for her, the trials, the difficulties, the raging river, the fiery trial are sent to burn. They are sent in God's wrath. But then there was the elect remnant too that God would use this same Babylonian captivity to bring them to repentance. To help them to see and to acknowledge their sin and and upon apprehension of God's mercy in Jesus Christ to cry out for deliverance. And for them, God's word is that you will not be burned. And understand the only possibility of that is the saving work of Jesus Christ. That for God's people, these trials and afflictions do not serve our destruction. Because what Christ has done is something that no one else could possibly do. For our Savior has taken the very trials and afflictions that we must face and separated out of them the wrath of God, the destruction that would otherwise come upon us. You see, the destructive power of water is that it drowns. That's how it kills someone. And the destructive power of fire is that it burns and it consumes. And ordinarily, you cannot separate those two. To be underwater for a long period of time means you're going to drown. If you're going to be in fire, it means you're going to be burned and consumed. And 
There's no changing that. But Christ does something miraculous in that he separates the drowning from the water, the burning from the fire. Just to say he takes God's wrath out of the trials. And if we ask how can he do such a thing, He did it by going to the cross to bear the wrath of God for our sin. And that means we're meant to consider the cross of Jesus Christ in light of the language of Isaiah 43, verse 2. Beloved, consider the cross. And that at the cross, Jesus Christ was taking upon himself the destructive power of water. And that for three hours, he was drowning under the waves and the billows of God's wrath. Jesus Christ had to pass through the waters. And really, he had to do more than pass through them. He had to drink them. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the last drop. And what did he say when he finished that cup? I thirst. Because what else would you say after enduring the fiery wrath of our God? For Jesus Christ endured the agonies, the torments of hell itself during those three hours of darkness. Congregation, do you see it? Do you understand what our Savior was doing for us? He was taking the drowning. He was taking the burning, which is to say he was taking God's wrath upon himself for our sins. So that when we pass through the waters and we must walk in the midst of the fire, there is no more drowning and there is no more burning. They no longer have any ability to destroy because Christ took all that away. And that's why Isaiah 43 verse 2 can say what it does. That when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. All of that is because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. And all of this is so vividly illustrated for us in the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Children, do you remember those three names? Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And do you remember how the king had a, a dream of a, a statue and how he made a, a giant idol out of it and told everyone in the land to bow down and to worship this idol. And these three friends said, no, we're not going to worship that image because we worship only God. 
But then the king, in his fury, in his wrath, took those three friends and he had a fiery furnace. He heated up seven times hotter than normal and threw those three men into it. But children, what did the king see when he looked into that fiery furnace? Daniel 3, verse 25, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. What a vivid illustration of the truth of Isaiah 43, verse 2. For you see, there's God's people in the midst of fire, but they are not alone. With them in the midst of the fire is our Savior, Jesus Christ, protecting them, shielding them, so that they are in the fire. They are not consumed. They are not burnt. They are not hurt. And so it is for us. Child of God, the trial, the affliction you are facing right now is not meant for your destruction. That's not God's purpose in it. But instead, his good and loving purpose is to purify you. We've explained the negative, what God's purpose is not, but now we must also speak to the positive. Positively, God's purpose in sending us through the waters and into the midst of the fire is that God would sanctify us, he would purify us, he would refine us. Because is that not the other biblical part, the other idea of the, these two elements? fire and water. We know they're destructive forces, but if we survey the pages of Scripture and ask, well, what do we see fire and water doing? They're also used to cleanse. So that water is used in Scripture as with reference to its, its purifying abilities that were washed and fire. Scripture speaks of fire as that which burns away the the dross from a precious metal so that that precious metal comes forth pure and refined. And that's God's purpose in sending us through these things. Not to destroy, but to purify. That was his purpose with Judah. When they were carried away into captivity, God would bring them back. He would bring his people to repentance. It would serve their good. And that's his purpose for us. It's still painful. There's no minimizing that. But it's meant for our good. So that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ so that we might look like him more and more from a spiritual point of view. That's God's good and loving purpose. 
It's only when we bear all of that in mind that my Savior is with me, that this is not sent for my destruction, but sent for my good, that we can then heed that word that comes to us. Fear not. Do not be afraid. For though you must pass through the waters, though you must walk in the midst of the fire, and you may well be doing that right now, your Redeemer will be with you through it all. And he will uphold you and care for you and bring you through it so that you shine as gold. May God give us the grace to trust him. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for this comforting word which we have heard. And we pray that thou wilt apply it unto our hearts and lives. Give us trusting hearts and help us to know thy presence. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.